damn functional programming. <laughs> Hello there listener, hope you are an Android developer. My name is Artem Zinatulin and you are listening to The Context, episode number 8, about functional program, with co-host Hannes Dorfman, yo. Hello. And guest Francisco Estevez, also known as Paco or Paco Ito or Paco Works or whatever other nickname he has, yo. Hey, how are you doing? <laughs> I don't know what to answer such questions because I'm not American. So let me introduce Paco to you. Uh, basically, we were trolling people in different Slack chats and eventually became online friends. At least I have such impression. And oh, yeah? yeah, that's basically it. And by the way, he likes functional programming. I mean, like a lot. Like it's 5 a.m. for you and you're starting to thinking about going to sleep. But this guy has one idea after another about writing functional code in his projects and open source libraries and for work projects and all that stuff because his time zone is minus three from yours. And Hannes asked me to make some bad jokes. Please note letter S at the end. So here are two of my <laughs> bad jokes. So first one, I'm currently speaking into a sponge for dishwashing on top of my microphone. Because sentence on the box said that it's sponge for use in the kitchen and I'm in the kitchen, so it's legal and I just hope that it'll help with sound quality. And <laughs> second one, uh, last year I met Paco offline in Amsterdam, but depending on the state or country we're listening to the episode, it might be not legal to continue the story. <laughs> that is basically it. Now, yes. Hannes, yeah, it's your time to ask questions. <laughs> okay, so we're very thrilled that Paco is joining us for today's episode. And obviously, since he is uh, very familiar with functional programming, we thought it would be cool to talk about functional programming in this episode. So Paco, could you give us a little bit of an introduction to functional programming? What is functional programming from your point of view? Yes. So uh, for me, functional programming has been only a tool that I've been using to um, a little bit of like improve the quality of my code and it's helped me develop uh, features faster. So at some point I was a little bit concerned about the way I was doing things and the things that I were being told for a while. So I decided to look a little bit deeper into it. And uh, what I found is that it fills some of the gaps that I had starting with development when we have like this concurrency, all these threading problems and any kind of uh, multiple state that is just going back and forth. So when RxJava became one of the um, known libraries uh, a couple of years ago, I started looking deeply into it and I found this whole world that um, I've been, wow, it's been exploded for me, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, cool. But what is what is the difference between functional programming and, let's say, traditional imperative programming as Java or something like that? Um, can you give us a little example of what we can expect when we talk about functional programming compared to imperative programming? Sure. So for me, the the key element to understand is that in functional programming, most most of the code is expression oriented. Uh, you're always having these equalities where you have the left side, which is the name of your function, which has several parameters, and that function is the equivalent of other operation. The same way that you would you would do in math for like three plus four equals five. One is the definition of the operands, and the other one defines the result, right? So, um, you have this happens for uh, for all the way down to the stack. You keep having these definitions up until right at the very end where the whole functional thing is built on actual imperative code. You need that because that's the language the uh, computer operates in. If you're writing any kind of C or, or um, assembly or any, any way of directly um, communicating with the computer, 
functional programming is built on top of that with all this set of abstraction for you to create high-level code that um, relates more to the way you're doing things than the way a computer does. So if you talk to people that have been doing functional for a while, this relates to function purity, meaning that the, uh, the thing that you have in either side of the operation has to be um, a result, kind of 3 plus 4 equals 5, it doesn't equal 5 plus a log or 5 plus a storing value in a database. And the second one is the immutability, and this is something that is the same. Um, you cannot just say 3 plus 4 equals 6 for one result, for one value, and 3 plus 4 equals 7 or 5 for another one. So you always have this operation that is supposed to be um, held together. Okay, but why going away from uh, the language that computers thinks in? Yes. So the, the main idea is that as you go up the abstraction ladder, um, you end up having fewer problems that are derived from the accidental complexity that you have on imperative programming. And what I mean with this is that you have what is called the, um, um, the design patterns, you have these ideas that you have an actor, exactly, you have an actor model, or you have this, this class model, this um, strategy. Exactly. You, they talk to each other. So the idea is that you have a set of classes that exist separately. Each class contains a series of states represented by fields and a series of methods. And then they are able co to communicate between each other. They do message passing. And when you were doing plain OC, where you were just mutating, mutating the state and then you decided to group it together into, into classes, that kind of worked. But as we have evolved a little bit and we have moved from a single-threaded paradigm, uh, into a multi-threaded one, we have found that these objects that they are talking to each other, they don't give you assurances based on um, threads, on this concurrency model. And you have to write things like this is null, this is a box type, um, this is a, a weak reference, we have callbacks, we are breaking execution here and there. Um, you have these rules, these patterns, this solid, so you can just bring it back into something that you are able to understand. But it's all based on like honor and craftsmanship, whereas functional programming is based on the restriction that the language puts onto you. So you don't have classes, that's correct, but you still have data types the same way that um, you have a class that contains like you uh, like a, uh, an animal contains number of legs or if it's a mammal or if you have a client and the client has a name and an address that thing still exists and you also have interfaces and you have some way of inheriting between interfaces where you say this is my contract you're supposed to have these three or four methods that are supposed to be fulfilled for me and um, this actual contract is also containing parts of another different contracts and you can join them together yeah, makes a lot of sense. Right. But by going reactive, or I mean functional, you're not going to abaddon imperative code completely, right? So you're going to have some small amount of imperative code, but most of the business logic and all that stuff will be functional in your style of programming, right? Correct. That's the idea. So what you're trying to build when you have a functional application is what is called the um, functional core imperative shell. Meaning that uh, the thing that you're working on your application, the thing that is relevant to you, exists in a core, exists in an island, where everything is quote-unquote perfect. You don't have nodes, you have very good handling of errors, um, you don't have, you have defined every, uh, the model is defined within your um, scope, um, your context. But everything that happens outside of that island is, is uh, imperative code, is the way you talk to databases, is the way you talk to networks, the way operative, uh, you talk to the operative system or anything of the sort. So you have to understand when you're working with one and when you're working with the other, which ones are uh, important to you as a person building an application and which ones are the ones that are left to people that are doing a framework or libraries or anything of that sort. Okay, that sounds reasonable. Yeah, the way I, I like about, or the way I've tried to explain others' functional programming is basically what you said on the very beginning, that the code, it's so much more readable, it's so much easier to reason about because um, you have all those functions and you know the signature, the signature of the function and you know exactly what you get back and what you have to put in. So there are some, or you already have mentioned some, 
terminology about functional programming like pure functions and mutability. And obviously, it's a little bit hard to talk about coding and programming in a podcast. So we could could we just wrap up some other terms in some kind of sightseeing stuff style, going through um, through some words you may stumble upon if you look up for functional programming like higher order function. What what is a higher order function? Why is it useful? Yes. So higher order function is just a function that takes a function as a parameter. And you've been doing this for a while. Everybody has. Because when you have something that goes into the network and requires a callback, you were passing this anonymous class or this um, interface or uh, this like other separate class that contains one single parameter, one single method, sorry. And that method is the one that defines what happened with your execution after the operation finished. And that's called a continuation. And that's one type of higher order function. It's a function where you just pass in a continuation and whenever it finishes, it calls it. You can also do the same for things that are parametric in the case that you pass a function that has a return. So somebody, uh, somebody needs um, an if case and an if case needs a strategy pattern or, or a visitor pattern or needs to modify some of the values internally, you will pass one of those visitor, uh, no, sorry, visitor policy, um, those checks into the actual method. It will use them and then they will return back. And you've already been doing that for many years. The difference is before they were called design patterns and they were part of a class and there was a book on them. And in this case, <laughs> in functional programming, everything is a function. So you're passing functions inside of the functions and they, they understand how to call them internally. It's a concept that is available all the way back to C. So it's not alien to, uh, it's not alien to anybody. It's just that we forgot about it due to, to object-oriented programming. Mm -hmm. And so basically writing any type of Rx Java-related code is like invoking higher-order function one after another, right? Um, very often they do. Um, for example, uh, map and flat map, which I think we'll, we'll, we'll take a look <laughs> at them later, um, are just a function that um, traverses the whole observable and just applies that function internally all the time. You have the same in, in like Kotlin for list. Mm -hmm. You have the streams API in Java 8. And all of them are based on that principle that you're able to traverse any structure in either space or time, and you can apply those functions internally. Okay. Yeah, that's that's cool. Actually, a good point to, to mention that uh, RxJava is basically called a functional reactive library. And we talked a little bit about the functional stuff, but there are a, a little other terminology called a monad that is basically very important in that context to make this, also to make an observable work. Could you, could you elaborate what a monad actually is? Yes. So at the core level, a monad is a wrapper. It just wraps any kind of data or information that you have and it enhances it with behavior. So... It, it's a little bit inside out. You say this is a monad because it adds this extra behavior. And you can make a monad of pretty much everything as long as they fulfill one, um, one interface, one simple interface. So the case of the monad uh, for a list, for example, is A, I want to be able to, um, I have a list of elements and this list of elements is of type uh, string and I want to convert it to a list of integers. Right? So how do I do that with a higher order function? I just map it. And the uh, implementation for map is I go through each one of the individual elements. I do a string conversion from a string to integer. Let's assume that the, that the instruction doesn't fail. And then at the other side, I get a, um, a list of integers, right? And that's called a functor. And that's one level before the monitor. What happens later, and the functor has this map. What happens later when I have a list for which each one of the internal elements that is a string actually returns a list of characters. Every character is the, uh, one of the elements inside the string. I would get a list of lists, which is not exactly what I want because what I want is actually a list of characters that contains all the strings re received. So what it has to do is you have to flatten it. What it used to be a list of list of characters becomes a list of characters. It maps it first from the, um, from the string into the character, and then it flattens it and just keeps a single, a single list. So list can be a monad. There are other monads. For example, you can have things like uh, optional. You can have the optional monad, which you can map if the optional means that the type exists or a value is available or is not available. If it's available, 
you map it into a new value. If it's not available, you don't map it. And flat map looks pretty much the same. If there is a value available, it's able to flatten it to a top level. You cannot have an optional of optional of optional of an int flattens it single optional of int. Mm, makes sense. And so basically, without some details, observable from RxJava is a monad, right? Because it's you can apply operators to the observable and you'll get an observable back. So exactly. you are staying so inside is... observable world, right? Applying some operations on it. Yes, that is one comparison that is often done in which you have your, your world of types, of regular types, where you have a strings and then you have, you lift it into the world of monads and you say, I'm going to wrap it in an observable and then I can do all the operations that are within or inside the observable. So you can do the map, you can do the flat map, you can do all these operators as long as they are wrapped inside the, inside the observable because it's the one that is giving it the extra behavior. And the way of chaining it is by using a flat map. Okay, so basically a monad-like unobservable is some kind of wrapper to be able to chain operations or, or function calls after each other. Is that, is that okay? Or is that a definition you don't agree with? Um, no, that, that thing is, is okay. It's a, way of, it's a way of chaining operation, flat map. Um, the difference is how you do the chaining. Because in the case of uh, observable, you have two possible cases. One is unsuccess and the other one is on error. And that's the way how they are defined. In the case of a list, it may be a different case where the list is empty or when the list contains values. So depending on your language and the, the capabilities that you have, the actual implementation of the monad may be different. But the idea is pretty much the same. You're able to chain um, monads of, uh, mon uh, to pieces of code one after another that way, yes. Okay, yeah, makes sense. And also I think error handling is part of a monad, like an observable, because then you can skip some other function. Is that correct? That, that were in the, in the chain of uh, you have established before? Um, so that's, that's one of the um, extra uh, capabilities that you get from the observable. So there are other types like um, try or either, uh, where you're defining an operation that can either throw an error or, or can return a successful value. And among other things, observable is capable of doing that error handling and it's also capable of doing asynchrony. So it's kind of like a super monad composition of uh, several different all the time, which is really, really neat. And all of that is like hidden from you. Yeah, and it's all imperative inside. <laughs> yes, yes. Again, everything like uh, you're, you're, you're defining everything with expressions all the way down to the bottom. And then there's like this horrible, imperative, mutable, efficient code yeah, that you have to efficient. write for everything to work. But everything on the top is math. There is some way of math. Mm -hmm. Not calculus, but, but um, computer science style. Oh, and by the way, uh, there is a, let's say, design pattern that you can apply with RxJava with converting uh, all these ugly Java errors into values of your RxJava stream. So you will be staying in this value-only world as soon as while you're converting errors into values. And that may give you many neat things like no error handlers and so on. And what the, what are your thoughts about this? So um, th this, is, this is something that uh, when, you were, when you've been using RxJava for a while, and this applies mostly to RxJava, you realize that the error cases um, and the chain automatically exactly, yeah, just yeah. stop. It's a it's a hard stop, and most of the time you don't have hard stop. You only have them when something goes really wrong, like I'm out of memory. So most of the time, what you're actually expecting is either a success or an error because you went to network and the network actually came with uh, some response that you weren't expecting. And for me, that's not a hard kill. I may have a chain that is listening to uh, clicks from the user on the middle of the screen, and I don't want those clicks to stop being listened to. I only want the actual network operation to return with a failure type. So you can wrap those um, into uh, something that is just a simple value of either a success or either an error. You have to have a definition of either types at language level, at library level, to be able to do these things. And luckily, uh, 
In Kotlin, we have the SEO classes, which people are already using and, and giving talks about and, and understanding little by little. And in Java, I at some point, somebody made a library called RxEther. And I looked at it and said, hey, this is really cool, but it only works for like two possible uh, cases, A or B or left or right. And I said, I can generalize this to be working with any number of types, as long as I do the definition properly. And I did that. I shipped it out as a library. I have a couple of stars, but I'm still convincing people <laughs> that you have to model. You have to change your model. Like um, when you have this separation in flow, in execution flow, it can be um, branch left, branch right. Instead of doing an if, you just put a union type in there and, and, and then you, uh, you pattern match it. Or just use Kotlin. Use pattern match it. Yes, yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> Well, Kotlin, unfortunately, doesn't have that capability of, of pattern matching like other functional programming have. You mean like deep pattern matching? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can use when, uh, the when statement to, to ask for the case that, I don't know, that, let's say when x is an integer, then do that. And when x is a string and, or the string ABC, then do that. But that's basically just an if-else replacement. But with the functional programming language, you can use really cool pattern matching stuff on, on tuples, on lists, where you can say, um, amongst the other things I have mentioned before with Kotlin, you can do that as well in, in functional programming languages. But you can also do something like split the list into the first element and the rest of the list. And then you can, you can write some, some pretty simple and clean code to... With, with this pattern matching thing. So that's definitely something I really miss in Kotlin. Yeah. So the, uh, the, when, the, the good part is that with the structuring, which uh, I think JetBrains is adding in the new version of Kotlin, you're able to access the fields inside each one of the elements. And I think you can do if inside of those. So that, that should be nice. But as you said, it's being uh, at bytecode level or it gets compiled as an if, as a nested if statement. The good part is for SEO classes, because um, JetBrains knows how many possible inheritors there are, you are requested every single time that you feel it was, it's one of the possible cases. So, for example, when you're doing a switch in Anenium on, on plain Java, if you miss any of the branches, if you forget to do it for like three of the five types, you don't get any error messages. Whereas if you do it with SEO classes, uh, Kotlin compiler is going to tell you, hey, you forgot to add these two cases. If somebody comes with these two cases, uh, you're gonna, uh, you're not gonna know. We're not going to know what to do. So you have to fill those in, and you can do default. Of course, you can just uh, let it jump and jump at the end of the of the of the function or the method, and then return something else. But at least the fact that the compiler is is working for you is something that for me is invaluable because that means that whenever I do changes, whenever I, my design includes a new version, a new state, or something of the sort. I'm being told every single place where it can possibly happen that I have to go back and change it, which is really nice. Yeah, totally agree. It's definitely a, a major improvement over the switch statement from Java, but still not that cool no. or that, <laughs> that uh, let's say, advanced as, for instance, in Haskell or... yeah. Or no, no, no. The best part about when statement expression expression in Kotlin is that you don't have to write this I would use this word, but damn, I hate to write break in Java switches. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, you're totally right. Oh, God, I, I haven't noticed that until now, uh, that you don't have to write the, the, the break at the end of a, uh, of a, of a statement in, in, in Kotlin. Wow, <laughs> I have missed that totally until now. Thanks for mentioning that. <laughs> That's nice. Uh, another cool thing I think is, you as you have mentioned earlier uh, with functional programming, is that error handling can be done, I would say, more advanced. As you have said, you could use a tuple, an optional, an either type, and so on. And I think that's, that's pretty important to understand because then you really can write functions where you just have to look at the method signature, signature, signature <laughs> and you know exactly what's coming back and it's not lying to you. Because, for instance, let's say we have a, a, a mathematical function like um, divide something and you pass in an integer a and the integer b. But if you pass in an integer, uh, and then you do a divided by b, uh, but b is zero, then, you will an, uh, then a runtime exception will be thrown, right? 
And with these idle types, you can basically, uh, or with optionals, you can basically not, not work around it, but really have then also a method signature where you see that, yeah, it's coming an optional out or an idle type out of it where either it's a valid result or either it's not. And I think that's really available and really a nice approach to how to program or how to deal with errors. Don't you agree with that or have I said something wrong? No, no, everything is completely correct. So the idea is that when you're calling a function in Java and the function returns any class, let's say, for example, returns a string, the actual return of this function is either string or null or an exception. And you don't know which one of the three can is, uh, could be. And we pretend that we pretend that, <laughs> that it's always going to be a string. And, and maybe we annotate with like um, a checked exception or, or nullable or something of the sort. But we don't do this at language level. We don't do this as, as, um, as a design. We just say, hey, I'm going to give you a hint of what kind of stuff you are, you're expecting. Whereas if you're in a functional language, if I, ha if I want to return an exception, I cannot throw it. I can only return back through the type system. Another cool part about the thing that you said is that uh, what happens if you're sending an integer that is actually lower than zero? And... Something that people don't um, need to move forward and, and some part that functional programming gives you is that instead of doing the validation internally, instead of passing an integer and the first line of the function is like invariant or preconditions.check, the value is lower than zero, else return something else. What you can say is I'm going to pass a type that is a non-zero or a more than zero, a positive integer. And how do you construct a positive integer? You have a smart constructor, uh, a factory function Very that smart. where you pass an integer and you return an optional <laughs> of saying either nothing or the, or the positive integer. So you cannot call that method unless you call it with the correct parameters. And you do that at type level, meaning that the compiler is going to take it for you. I cannot pass anything into that function that doesn't uh, comply with the preconditions. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's nice. I mean, I haven't thought about it yet, but... Yeah, if you say that your input uh, integer is a non-zero int, then this problem is, is basically solved and without having yeah, to add preconditions. Well, really, really nice, yeah. Yeah, you just I need to have <laughs> like 10 functions to do the division of well, numbers <laughs> because of different... That's, that's, that's the thing. So now let's take it one level up. Instead of having a non-zero integer, you have an union of zero positive integer and negative integer, and your function takes uh, that union as an input. So internally, it's able to pattern match either the three cases and return you the results based on that. So you're, you're moving things from code into types, into data that you're able to look at any point in time. So that's how you would use exactly the explosion in functions that you have. So now you want pattern match to divide numbers. <laughs> well, <laughs> then yes, you had to do you had to do if before, right? You have to check that it wasn't zero, it wasn't minus one, or it wasn't positive. Or just so divide them and hope that it's not zero. <laughs> yeah, because I of know. performance. <laughs> Definitely, I, I've seen that before. Actually, for <laughs> for most functions, you have another um, function that is called the same name unsafe and it just does it is when you're i've done this before when you're in java and you have to do a cast and you can do a proper cast where you're passing the class because of erasure you pass the class as a parameter and then you do the casting like a normal person or you can just say hey this is a generic i'm just gonna cast it with like parentheses and hope that it doesn't throw a you know a class cast exception and just roll with it and i call that unsafe i think it was on the paper library i think that it was a database you could fetch anything from the database it's a store as a blob and if you're uh, you can do the casting safe which is a little bit more expensive or unsafe and just you know better performance i don't care if it crushes your problem <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah Oh, I have a little story that we may cut from the podcast, <laughs> but whatever. <laughs> so the story is that ah, filter operator in RxJava is not actually as type safe as it could be. And we had a problem. So try to think about it. Uh, we had a stream that was used in many places in the application, okay? And mm -hmm. this was a stream of... Uh, 
I think it was sealed glass, Scotland. And uh, we usually just uh, filter uh, if type is required. Or we, we have a custom extension that filters and then casts to required type. So if item is required type, we filter it and cast it to, to the required type. And the problem was that we decided to change the type of, of the stream. And what we realized is that all the program compiled normally, except that all the consumers of that stream will no longer receive any events because types are not compatible at all. <laughs> and yeah. yeah, just damn functional programming. <laughs> <laughs> so in a filter function, you went and changed also the types. You need to do filter, you don't need to do map afterwards. No, actually, that's, <laughs> that's one common case. And I had, I had that one happen to me before. And what you are actually expecting is flat map. It's, it's a little bit counterintuitive because you have to do both operations. You have to do the check and then you have to do the cast. So instead of you do the flat map, and if the value is not of the type that you expect, you return observable.empty. Right, right. Oh. In our case, <laughs> we decided to write inline a function with refined types uh, so compiler yeah. could understand oh. and... Uh, uh, how that called uh, an inference the type uh, that we were looking for, but there is an issue in Kotlin that we will have to specify both uh, input type and output type, even if compiler can in uh, damn it inference. infer Infer-er. this type. Yeah, <laughs> I should probably file a ticket about this. So. Damn functional program. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> <laughs> again, the compiler is your is your friend. If you're fighting the compiler, then then you're done. <laughs> nah, yeah. I think I, I guess it could happen. Yeah. No, no. Yeah, not a really strange thing about. No, not really strange, but um, I always have to look up how or what exactly the filter uh, function should return <laughs> to pass this condition or not. <laughs> I, oh yeah. I forget it all the time, but I always have to look it up again. And yeah, yeah, just uh, <laughs> just my two cents on the filter operator. Yeah, if you're if you're actually using Java instead of Kotlin, or or you're not using Retro Lambda, when you look at the signatures of the actual um, functions that you have to pass, and it's something like wildcard, super type <laughs> right, T, or right. anything of the sort. Oh God, that's so confusing. <laughs> sometimes like I've, I've read about you know covariance contravariance <laughs> and all these things and and i'm supposed to know them but i still make mistakes so often it's so bad oh yeah but yeah kotlin generics uh i think they were designed to be better than java's but then they're much more confusing <laughs> than Java ones. for yeah. a definition of for a definition of better they are <laughs> let's put it that way okay uh. that works <laughs> Yeah, generics are in general well. Damn yeah. functional program. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, Paco, you, you gave some, some talks about RxJava, and since we have already talked a little bit about RxJava, could you, could you sum up a little bit of how or, or what you're talking about or how you apply RxJava in your Android apps? Yes. So, uh, functional programming is... Um, it's a, a small scope kind of thing. It's something that helps you to work with small pieces of code. It's not a larger story. So as a community or, you know, as developers, they came up with a whole reactive thing. And the reactive is the, the, um, the paradigm or the idea that works on the large. How do we create a whole system based on functional programming ideas that is capable of scaling, that is elastic, that is resilient to errors, that... Um, and it, it's responsive to the users. You know, these, are, these were the three key concepts, I think, when they were defining responsive, resilient, elastic. So the idea is that you have a series of immutable values. Each value is immutable over time. And once you add the time variable into functional programming or into any other thing, that's when the, when the stuff blows up because you're thinking futures, you're thinking, um, you know, thread pools, you're thinking all these many things that you have to put together into features where you before wouldn't care about the threading model. For example, I just want a user to click, go to network, go to database, and then uh, show it on the screen. And now we have threads in the middle, which is accidental complexity. 
And and before, or if you're on web, maybe you don't have to think about those, but in the case of Android, we do. So other communities started looking in web into the whole Redux. And Redux was an evolution of Flux, and it's all based on the same idea of functional programming of reducing over state. And it's something that you have done, I've done, everybody has done. Can you please count the, um, the number of elements inside this list? Of course, I set an integer zero, then I do a for loop, and then I give a result back. And the for loop, it just sums the values. It just modifies the initial state. And that's the same idea with reactive programming. You have an initial state, which is your screen. Something, um, you know, something's happening. Like uh, you have the, the, your list of elements. You receive a signal, which is your for. You just go through them, modify the state, and then you put a new version out. And that's the version that you're interested in. And over this idea, that's how you build the whole reactive, reactive thing. Um, you reduce complexity by using observables. Um, <laughs> but if you were in another language, yeah, if we were in another language, I would be. I could be using something else. And Scala has, you know, version based on Akka. It also has Monix and Cats and all these things. Um, Haskell has Reactive Banana. Elm is a language based exclusively in these concepts of like functional reactive programming. So it's it's growing. It's growing on the larger community, and I thought it could be good bring those concepts back into into the android world so i put some time into it i did a couple of implementations that were in production i'm not proud of the first version and probably not proud of the second one i think i'm already on like the fourth or fifth and it's starting to look good now <laughs> i think i think it was ready for the spotlight and i started talking about it in like droidcon and all these places i just think we we need to quote uh, you you uh you reduce complexity by using observables that is <laughs> <laughs> like uh, uh you have a problem use an observable now you have observable of problems <laughs> <laughs> fair fair point fair point fair point yes it's a it's a whole unlearning experience actually. oh you know what the thing i think we must discuss actually here while we are talking about functional programming is that RxJava would be much, much, much more nicer if type system could carry more information for us. Like, how do you understand? Should I share upstream or not? Because the type is observable, whatever underlying implementation it is. And there are so many things uh, about missing information at compile time, which just drive me nuts sometimes. I mean... Mainly, it's about, for example, uh, you have an upstream observable that you accept as a parameter in your function, okay? And yeah. you want to subscribe to it multiple times, for instance. Do you have to share it? How could you know? That's one example. Second example, uh, you have an observable passed to you as a parameter to your function. It's functional programming, okay? So <laughs> you want to subscribe to it. Would you receive initial value? How do you know it? And all this stuff would be much more nicer if by the looking at the type you would be able to to realize what the behavior would be like. Or you think it's incorrect to, to think in such terms while you're in functional work. No, so I I agree with you. Uh we're somewhat limited by the language. So in the case when you say I'm passing an observable, you mean that you're passing uh, either an inter, no, I think it's a base class at this point, the observable source one, right? And you don't know which implementation of observable source it is. Or you say, I want to receive an observable in Java, uh, RxJava 2.0, which means it's the one that doesn't have back pressure, mm -hmm. and it means that it doesn't have caching. And if you had a single mm -hmm. um, hierarchy of saying, hey, this one is cached, this one is not cached, this one is pre-cached, and you could pass that, um, type into the function as one of the parameters, that would be awesome. That is not a language feature in either Java or Kotlin. That's the higher kinder types thing in which you can generify over something that is already generated. And that would be really awesome, actually. Yeah. Damn functional program. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I'm, uh, we're, we're, fighting, we're fighting a little bit against the stream. Yes, we don't have all the tools. We can only reach this far. You have to understand that the whole monads thing 
it's something that grew from functional programming. It's not the functional programming. It's just a way of doing things. Um, people have been doing Clojure and Lisps and um, JavaScript and, and many other languages that is only function passing. It's function passing left, function passing right. The either types are actually a function that requires two functions and returns a value. Um, a map can be a function where the function is actually the key and you pass the key and then, then you receive value. A list can be a function. Everything can be a function. You just, you just left it into the whole monad thing because you want this asynchrony, you want this error handling and all this stuff. And if you want to go even a level higher when you have a, general, a more general, generalization of the things, that's, um, that's where the line breaks. Do we, there are ways of doing it. There are libraries and people doing it, but the Redmi, I give you not the Redmi, is the greatest feature of this library is that it actually works. Don't use it in production. <laughs> <laughs> Don't don't touch. But yeah, if we if we could have a hierarchy or something of the sorts, it would be nice. But I don't think it would solve the whole problem altogether. Okay. What what else uh, want you to mention regarding functional reactive programming or RxJava? Are there any best practices or any any cool tricks you want to share with us? Um, oh wow! Well, yeah. Uh, so. This and I think I think Hans, this you you agree with me on this. It's like it depends on how you build your architecture on top of Rx Java or or on top of these functional reactive ideas that um, you could apply some tricks or you could or or you could not. So I think in your case you you're building uh, Mosby, right, which is a generalization that works for everybody, and you have you have a way of of dealing with uh, observable chains and cancellation and all and all those ideas, correct? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, it, it's some kind of, let's say, scaffold you can use to build, or the idea is to, it is just a library and you can build your architecture, as you have mentioned, on, on top of that, but you get some, let's say, state um, things or state, um, keep, keep state or keep presenters doing orientation changes for free with this library, yes. Exactly. So in my case, yes, I have, I have pretty much the, the same the same concept of like how do I attach a view, how I detach the view, and how I do cancellation, which is um, it's what I've been presenting these months. Basically, uh, some stuff may be different, some stuff may not apply to you. Some of the um, of the things when I when I say hey, we're gonna subscribe on resume and then unsubscribe on pause, our operations do not surplus this rotation. You know, I don't want any observables to be kept alive. Those things depend a lot on, on your use case. So I wouldn't go and say, just use this or use that. Um, it works. It's been working for lots of people for a while. I've been exploring what happens when you have to go a little step further and what happens when you, are, when you have something that actually has to rotate, that has to work on, on tablet landscape portrait and all of these things. And it's yes. supposed to be running across everything. And I found, for example, for unsubscription, the take until, is it's been working great for me because I can do granular cancellation in the middle of the chain and I can keep the rest of the chain alive. But it requires understand, certain understandings of like memory management. You have to take a look at the operators and understand which observable, which origins are infinite, are hot, they are always emitting values, and which ones are finite. They return one, two, three, four, doesn't really matter, a number of values and they terminate. Because there's a case very often where you just go and say, hey, I have this infinite observable that is, for example, user clicks. I do a flat map into network request, and then I do two lists because I want to get, um, maybe the network request gives me five results, and then I can add them together as a list, right? The problem is because you have put the list at top level, um, and the origin is actually infinite, to list requires a finite observable. And in here is what uh, Artem said about the type system giving you hints. You cannot have this kind of um, to list for finite observables if the origin is actually infinite. So you just have to move it inside the flat map. Mm -hmm. So you have to be careful about what happens at which layer of flat map. And sometimes the nesting can get really deep. So for that, I create a little helper that is something that already exists in Scala and, and these other languages as a top-level construct, which is comprehension. And comprehension is just a way of chaining flat maps. When you say I have a flat map and then another flat map inside and then another three or four or five, because 
maybe the first level is the user clicks, the second level is the cache, then the network, then the database, then, I don't know, you're playing a video and the video has to return you something, and you have to understand which operations belong into each level of nesting. So you can bring all of those back into the top level and you reduce the amount of like visual noise. So you're able to see, oh, on the first level, I'm only doing a call. and the second level, I have a map and a filter. At the third level, I actually have these two lists and these other things. And when I have a problem, the problem has happened when it has reached doom, this level of nesting. So it helps maintainability, helps um, reasoning about at which level the errors have happened. I think same is happening in the brain of listeners. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there are, there are things. There are like, things, uh, I know. <laughs> you have a flat map, of a flat map, of a flat map, but you want to move all of them to the top level. Just, you, you, we have to, just... to make a pause for a minute at <laughs> this point. Yes. So when you, when you have all these levels of nesting, that means that a flat map, if you remember, is a higher order function, right? right. And the higher order function takes a parameter and it returns an observable right. of the next layer. So you can write a helper that simply takes that function and it puts it um, as a list. You say, um, do comprehensions, you know, do flat map. And then at the first level, it will take zero parameters because it's the origin and it will return an observable. At the second layer, it would, it would, it's a function that takes one parameter, which is the return of the layer above, and returns an observable. At the third level, it has the parameter from the, the two above, mm -hmm. and then it returns an observable. And you can go all the way down, you can nest, and you can see all the information that you have received as an origin and as a destination. And that's the way of seeing how your flat map has evolved, rather than having it as a pyramid of doom or maybe calling another separate functions and you're also able to see the captures between levels of nesting because you're capturing this value that is actually from the level above okay so if you have if you have some kind of lambda right and you're trying to capture something from outside the lambda that's not visible to you unless you bring it into a top level and you say oh yes of course i'm capturing these three four values that I need to be able to compose the next observable. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking, why would you need that if <laughs> language is pretty concise? So, I mean, you, oh, you probably have lots of reusable uh, flat maps, right? Yeah. Okay. Definitely, for sure. So that you could you could separate everything in functions. You got, you also get the visibility, and, and you can get those those levels of nesting. It's a hard. It's actually a hard library to sell, even though it's really, it's been really useful to me because it makes the code way more concise. But um, little by little. <laughs> I think we'll sell it to probably two listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Call me. Call me. <laughs> Quality guaranteed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 100%. Okay, now sell us your solution for managing state restoration. Oh god. Um I I don't I don't have one. I cannot I cannot uh go and say do it this way. Okay. Uh because that's I wouldn't I wouldn't even take my own advice if you if you understand what I mean. If you tell an engineer in any company, "Hey, do it this way." They they're just going to go and say, "Nah." I have my own solution, you know, I know better. And probably they do. Probably they do. So um, use whatever works for you. I'm, what I normally use, I have the state, this reactive state, that is this, this um, cache observables that contain the latest value. Um, I just put them on custom retain instance. So whenever you're rotating and everything, all of them go and all of them come back again. And that works for my cases. I know that's been that's been working for other people. In the I think in the example that I have, the functional Android reference on GitHub, I'm doing a trick where I use conductor. And I know that conductor saves all the screens. So if you put a field inside one of the um, what what are, what is the the screen name in conductor? Yeah, controller. controller. Controller, exactly. If you put a field in the controller, it will be retained across rotation. So you can just put the state as a field on rotation to have it back. 
Mm-hmm. And that's great. It also scopes it itself. If you want to use Dagger and you have these Dagger modules and you save the Dagger modules in a static context, you have you save it in the application or, or anything of the sort, everything works. Everything, everything works for you if you use a retain fragment. The, the main idea is that you have to retain these reactive state holders. And the state holder is actually a simple um, public, uh, sorry, behavior subject or behavior relay. So we were, when we were, sorry, I, this needs a little bit of context. So the, um, when I was talking about like fully reactive apps, um, you still have state. You have this thing that you're reducing, right? That you are, you're modifying constantly. You're creating these snapshots of immutable values, right? And you have to store those somewhere. That state is, is there. It's explicit. And you put those into behavior relay or behavior subject and you group them together. And all of them represents your screen state. So whenever there's a modification in either one of them, your screen modifies. It's like in MBVM, your view model, you just have a modification of your view model, your screen changes. In fully reactive apps, the idea is the same. You have your state on your behavior relays. Whenever there's a change in that, the screen updates. So if you're able to save those um, behavior relays that are not serializable that you cannot put as data into um, any kind of object, any kind of a schema that you want, your state will always be coming back because your view is completely passive, 100%. It doesn't know about like anything at all. It's completely dumb. And your business logic only acts on the state. It doesn't define the state. It doesn't create any, any of the state. It just is, it's only in charge of modifying it. So there is this large separation, this huge barrier between all of them where the um, state subscribes to the... Um, Sorry, the view subscribes to the state, and the state is modified by um, by the reducers or by the um, use case. Let's say not so modified, not but that, new yeah. state emitted. Exactly. Okay. It emits, you're right, you're correct. It emits a new state, and the new state can be something like, I have returned um, 10 new users because we have infinite scrolling, or it can be you have pressed a plus on the screen, and we're supposed to be up in a counter, from um, is the is the um, music player we had we had a video player and a music player right and the way I did it I I ignored the video player I ignore how it works I wrapped it into reactive extensions and I say whenever I say play you're gonna start returning the ticks whenever I say stop you don't stop I you're actually giving a piece of data that says it's either stop or started with the ticks or the values or how much I have moved. So the, the view only knows about that, about either has to be playing or it has to be stopped. But I don't care if the video player knows if it's starting or if it's stopping. I just say you have to restart yourself again. And maybe in the implementation, you have to write some extra um, bridge logic that um, fills in for those cases. But your business logic doesn't know about that. So for, for the view in a functional context, it's, it's more like the view is calling one function uh, with a parameter like I have I have pressed the play button and then it returns a new state as as the as the output of this function. So basically it's f- one big function from the from the view's point of view which is interacting with. Is that correct or is that what you're trying to say? Yeah. Um that's that's the idea. So the um, when whenever you start the application, right, you have you know the user interacts with the view. So instead of um, having that direct user interaction, when the user taps a, bu- uh, a button, we actually call this method, which is everything is code. Um, what you have is there's a published subject, there is an observable that the business logic has received as a parameter and is subscribed to. And when a user clicks on the screen, we just forward the value into that. And that observable is the one that triggers the reduce function, the reduce function comes out with the new state the new state is applied, and then because the view is subscribed to the state, um, it's able to update uh, the actual values on the screen. So you can potentially, the idea is to have a really se- a hard separation between your running application and your display of that application. So you can run your whole app from the command line, from the JVM. You could even run it and you could implement it in JavaFX or any Java base or any you know Java base environment because it's a library that doesn't know about anything under it. It doesn't know how to paint things on the screen. It doesn't know how to talk to a database or anything of the sort. It's just pure business logic that receives data and returns data. And then you have to implement how that data is being displayed on the screen. That's an implementation detail. 
that's something that happens at the end of the edge. And your imperative code is what happens outside of that business logic. It's the thing that we were talking before. You have the functional part, which is the thing that is listening to the observables, that is moving the data around, spits another piece of data, and then that data goes into the imperative world, into the Android world, and says, oh, actually, a play means that I have to fetch the video player the, with an instance of activity, and then I have to call play, but only if it's not played already. So you have to do all these checks, but all of those happen only at the UI layer, whereas your business logic layer is completely... Um, it's a completely transparent operation for them. And you can test against those business logic behaviors. And then on the other side, you can test against the UI because you only have to pass the latest piece of data and see that the information that you're expecting is displayed correctly. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Quite cool, yeah. Yeah, that's what we do both on Android and iOS and at Juno. We basically, iOS guys write UI tests that run... Uh, on a Mac <laughs> without any UI at all. So they are able to completely um, run the application in memory and basically, um, let's say, uh, inject their implementation of system widgets so it, it is able to run completely in memory. We have pretty much the same, but we are not doing UI tests in memory because our QA engineer like likes when he is able to see what's going on on the screen <laughs> because yeah it's it's sometimes a real problem for IS QA engineer <laughs> because he's not able to see anything he just yeah, have locks and debugger but yeah that that works so, I mean that's what I want to say well is then QA um, senseless at all well not senseless but it's <laughs> <laughs> well, will he lose his job? <laughs> yeah, we all well, will lose his job. No, the, um, I saw, I don't know, I think it was Jake or one of those guys that they have, no they have a, another <laughs> extra layer on the top that where you were able to talk to the UI in those terms. They would call it like little robots or, or, or something of the sort. When yeah. um, they could write the UI test based on those robots in the interaction, so it was another layer living in the middle. That's basically a like a presentation layer, screen abstraction, which is yeah, yeah, yeah. But but that's mostly on the testing side. I mean, he was oh. arguing that we should um, also layer our tests, uh, the the code we write for for testing. I mean, of not course, not simply yeah. write a add test annotation on a function and do all the stuff in there, but abstract that in layers so that we can, we don't have to touch all our test code when we make a, a little change somewhere. Uh, that, yeah. that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I, you can see a huge divide in, in the community um, between the people that like to only do espresso test and do UI end-to-end test because for them, that's the application. That's the real behavior of the application is what happens when I run against the real thing. And yeah. when our case, we run the application against the JVM, we validate that everything works, and then we assume and we expect we expect the UI layer to behave properly most of most of the time. And I don't see I don't see a winning losing case in that regard, um, or an effort case or anything of the sort. I understand why they do it, and and I support it. I like my way because it's easier for development. But I understand that sometimes the Android framework, I may be missing some subtleties in there that um, they don't go unnoticed when they are, when they are done in end-to-end -end tests. At the same time, the end-to-end -end tests are flakier than the ones running the, against me in memory. So it's a trade-off. Agreed. So what else? Have we skipped something or forgot something to talk about regarding functional programming? Uh, um, want you to tell us how you get started with functional programming? Sure. Best time to do so, it. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, functional programming, I, I started looking into it when RxJava came out and I tried to understand what's happening behind the scenes. I, I always like to peek behind the curtain and, and see how the magician looks like, you know. So. It's a, it's a long process. You have to first unlearn all the solid, um, you know, the sign patterns thing because it doesn't really, it doesn't quite apply 
in this case, and you have to and you have to change your your way of defining some things. So that's the hardest part. It's it's uh, all the habits that you already have. Once you know that, once you start looking into functional programming, you can actually take on most functional most functional languages because they all look the same. Like if you follow if you follow the feed of a functional programmer, one day they will be talking Haskell, the next day Scala, F sharp, closure. It doesn't really matter because most of them have the same ideas behind the scene. So if I were to start today, my favorite recommendation to people is always Closure for the Brave and True, which is a book. It's a really good book. It doesn't do anything on monads. It doesn't do anything on like functors, reactive or anything on the sorts. It just says, here's how everything is a function. And everything that is not a function and is global state is actually an atomic reference. And that's it. You have a definition of how you move things around, how you operate on data, how you operate on types, how do you define data classes that are actually functions and all these things, and how they work together to create a language that is used on, on backend development and, and nobody bats an eye about. If you want to move into something that is a little bit more mathematical, you want to know about the world of like monads and all those things, you have learned you a Haskell for greater good, which is um, a pragmatic approach to like a functional, uh, uh, a day-to-day um, solving problems using that functional programming stack. And my favorite advanced book, no, sorry, yeah, my favorite advanced book, the one where I validated some of the things that I've been testing on isolation was um, Functional and Reactive Domain Modeling, which is a book that came out three, four months ago. It's based on Scala, but it, it tells you how to move from, from those special ideas into a core use case that is based on a banking application and how you move things around so you where you used to have these checked exceptions, this um, you know mutable uh, sorry um, unpure functions into something that actually uses the type system and it does the reactive um, using I think Aka uh, Aka streams to to make it work, which is really great. The other one that is very pragmatic and that is based on real cases is uh, F Sharp for fun and profit, which is a blog, and it's also talks and, and many other things. Uh, but if you go to fsharpforfunandprofit.com, um, really, really recommend that. Really high-level overview of functional programming. It's F-sharp, and it, it just works beautifully. Yeah, that's definitely a good one. <laughs> Adam, do you have any other questions? I was actually checking my... Uh, my, my my issue about filter with RxJava and <laughs> uh, sorry guys <laughs> don't worry I was thinking that they might be they, they should be checked for the super type right and there is one so now I'm thinking why it doesn't work in our Kotlin code but anyways yeah your recommendations are very great I've read <laughs> <laughs> I, I haven't read any of them but I've read different books in mostly in Russian, fortunately or oh. unfortunately, <laughs> so I could not recommend any of them. <laughs> but how is the Russian Russian computer programming books? What what are we missing actually? Uh, I would say uh, there are some quite good ones, especially about Haskell. For some reason, I don't know why, but uh, there is pretty nice. big community of Haskell programmers in Russia. And yeah, there are some pretty good books about it. Other than that, I think I heard recommendation about this closure book like 10 times now, or <laughs> something like this. So <laughs> it looks like it's really good. So yeah. And our DevOps guys are actually writing in closure. <laughs> so crazy. Like cluster management in closure. Why? Nice. <laughs> <laughs> nice list is amazing <laughs> yeah so I guess that's it because we are over an hour now oh god yeah that, that, that's you your fault you talk for so long <laughs> <laughs> I know I, I, I keep telling people like don't put me from a microphone don't put me from an audience I just keep talking until somebody makes me stop 
Until later. No, it was fantastic to having you on the show. <laughs> really, really great episode with a lot of detailed information. Pretty, pretty appreciated. Thank you much, guys, for inviting me. Seriously, I appreciate it. Well, at last, um, you can promote your stuff. I'm, I know you have a lot of uh, libraries. Um, do you want to mention some of them or explain in just one sentence what they do? Uh, and of course, we will put some some links on the show notes or or your blog or whatever else you talk about. Uh, your, was your talk on the Droidcom um, a fully reactive apps recorded or do you have yes. the slides to share? So, okay, short, short. Um, writing functional code in Java sucks because of the whole generics thing and the lack of lambdas. <laughs> so I wrote help. I wrote helpers because I couldn't use Retro Lambda. We've been using it internally. People are loving them, and I open source many of them. I also open source helper for like union classes, these um, comprehensions, tuples, and anything that you actually need to do domain modeling based on functional types. So go ahead and check them out. I have a compilation library, and I have each one of them individually. Um, on my blog, I have one introduction series to reactive programming, in which I do a little bit of a refactor from imperative into functional. Um, and then when I finished that series, I moved into the talks. And now for the last four or five months, I, I published like five different talks on fully reactive apps, going from a high level overview with many concepts in fully reactive apps in DroidCon UK to each one of the individual cases with like domain modeling and error, um, doing errors, uh, memory management. And the last one was about um, how to run your app actually on memory on the REPL rather than doing it on, on your devices. So go check them at pacoworks.com. Any discounts for libraries? <laughs> I think, yeah, if you, if you add a couple of stars, like it, it will be helpful. I'm actually, I, if you, you can go to Reddit, like our Android dev, and I'm often hanging around. And if you have a suggestion for a library, you have something that you would want to add or something of the sort. Um, Mostly happy to to make any any adjustments that are required and make sense. I, it's happened to me before, actually. Have you found the person who uh, sets negative vote for your Reddit post? <laughs> <laughs> I, it's you. I know it's you. Every no. time I put a new blog post on Reddit within <laughs> the first two minutes, somebody downvotes, and then it goes up when the Americans. I, I wrote a, a bot in Kotlin to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's fully functional, like programming. Of nice. course, yeah. Is the Gradle is the Gradle written in Kotlin too, or? Oh no! I actually tried to do this in our project. Took me two hours, <laughs> and yeah, I was crazy and mad in the end. <laughs> Didn't done it. Well, for the next one. <laughs> okay, and there is a memo to self I see in the end of the document. Don't forget to mention discussion after the show on the GitHub, Hannes. Yeah, we have all. Have you ever mentioned that before that we have a GitHub uh, or that we use GitHub to. I'm actually not sure. Some kind of. Yeah, basically, we use GitHub as a website and we use the issue <laughs> tracker for discussion <laughs> after the show. You know, one of the uh, first. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Hannes. One of the first comments uh, about the first episode I published on the Reddit was. Uh, now I learned that I can use GitHub for, as a podcast hosting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so thank you again, Paco, for joining us. And yeah, don't miss the discussion um, on GitHub Issue Tracker afterwards. Mm -hmm. Thank you, guys. Take care. Yeah. Bye-bye. Thank you. I'm stopping recording.